Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Well, Nick, how are you doing this afternoon? I'm pretty well. I'm out, out here in Delaware, it's um, a little cool, um, but um, you know, life is uh, life is beautiful. Excellent, excellent. Well, and just for the listener, listeners, I want to let you know that uh, my friend Russ Green is on the call as well. He actually introduced me to Nick's work, and uh, he's got a couple of good questions to ask as well. Great. Well, Nick, do you mind giving us a brief bio and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Well, I'm a um, I'm a researcher at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm a lifer there. This is my 37th year, I think, uh, and it's been an exciting, wonderful place to work. If you're interested in public policy ideas, uh, as I am, I I suppose I, I have I use kind of statistical tools to chase after problems that are kind of hiding in plain sight. Because despite the data explosion and the information revolution, um, a lot of problems just get kind of overlooked. And you have to kind of, you know, ask about them and ask the right questions to, uh, to focus on them. I started doing work back in the 70s on during the Cold War on uh, things like the health crisis in the Soviet Union, which was kind of overlooked at the time. Uh, did work on poverty in America and whether our measurements were actually uh, uh, tracking things the way that they ought to be. And I think the reason you want uh, want me here today is because I did a book a few years ago called Men Without Work, America's Invisible Crisis, which pointed to this um, 7 million plus uh, person elephant that was hiding in the room at the time, and unfortunately is still kind of hiding in the room. The uh, men of prime working ages were neither working nor looking for work. Uh, and some of the... Uh, multitude of problems this uh flight from work in modern america was causing for our nation excellent excellent well, well nick i i'm curious how did you first find this problem uh you know like if you look at unemployment numbers like unemployment is very low right now uh but it does seem like we have this massive problem where there are a lot of people who are just not looking for work particularly men in this country uh, was there you know, a single moment where you realize like this is going on and it's a big problem and people aren't talking about this. I had a sort of an aha moment, um, maybe, uh, seven or so years ago when I was listening to some happy talk on the evening news about how we were approaching full employment or we were at near full employment and um, I say, this can't be right. And I uh, uh, did that awful thing of actually uh, going to uh, going to a statistical compendium and looking up facts. And when I did that, I saw what um, part of the problem was. Uh, the part of the problem was that at that time for every uh, guy between the ages of 25 and 54, that's what's called the prime working age. It's what the, uh, government came up with as terminology, not me, but for every prime working age guy in America back then who was out of work and looking for a job, there were over three who were out of work and not looking for a job. So if you track the unemployment rate, you were kind of fighting the last war. And you were missing three quarters of the problem at the time. Uh, that that was kind of when it dawned on me that we were uh, some of us were missing a big problem in America. Now, because um, men who dropped out from the workforce uh, 
weren't burning cars and weren't killing other people and weren't protesting or rioting, uh, it was maybe kind of easy to overlook this problem. And indeed, what they were the uh, the injury that they were mainly causing was to themselves because they were part of this terrible epidemic that you're familiar with, the deaths of despair problem. Um, but because um, because there wasn't any sort of external manifestation of crisis, I think it was easy for uh, the describers and deciders in our society to overlook or ignore this growing problem it's it's remarkable if you think about it that this has been going on since the 1960s it seems like it first started um this decline in male work it's been declining almost without relent and it doesn't seem to be affected to a large degree by changes in the economic cycle or by any specific events it just keeps on falling and falling and falling and the the other interesting thing about it uh is that you know it, it's not so much happening at least not to this degree in other countries right uh, i know italy has a very low male work rate but you know with the exception of italy um why is it that so many other countries seem to be doing better or on this metric than the United States is? What are we doing wrong, do you think? Well, I, I think those are excellent questions that you've posed. Um, as you noted, this is a very long-term problem. It's a historical problem now. We're in this, uh, we're in this negative trend of declining work rates for prime-age men for over half a century, for over two generations. Um, and as you also uh, rightly pointed out, it's been relentless, uh, you know, decade in, decade out, this uh, work rate for American men, for um, uh, civilian non-institutionalized men, non-institutional men, uh, has been going downward uh, you know, from one decade to the next. And you know, now as we're speaking, the work rate for men, for these men, is lower than it was in 1940 at the tail end of the Great Depression. This is a de Great Depression scale problem that we're talking about in the USA. So why is it so much worse here than in many other countries you mentioned Italy as the possible exception, and you put your finger on something there. Because I don't know anybody who really believes Italy's employment statistics who follows them. Because there's so much off-the-books uh, off work that goes on in Italy that Italy's work rate for true work rate for men is probably higher than the U.S., so we're out by our lonesome and winning a uh, winning an award that we shouldn't want to win. They've got the Cosa Nostra category <laughs> of employment there. <laughs> so, so why so why is this? Um, all around the world, you know, we've had this um, you know continuing globalization, this continuing economic and technical revolution, uh, structural changes in economies. Um, and everywhere this has put some pressure on employment, of course, uh, and everywhere in the uh, affluent uh, world, you know, in the world of rich democracies, there's been some decline in male work rates, but nothing like ours. I suspect that part of, um, part of the reason for this relentless decline uh, you wouldn't have a relentless decline if it was mainly a consequence of economic factors like business cycles, and you'd see it going up and down, right? There, when you've got this kind of almost straight line going down, um, I think there are a couple of factors that we can point to. Uh, one is the change in family in the United States. Uh, with, the, uh, with the breakdown of the family, there have been there are many fewer men who are in homes, uh, you know, 
in married couple or cohabiting couple homes with children. And those always have been the, uh, the places where work rates have been highest for guys. Uh, and always the work rates are lowest for guys who've never gotten married and don't have, you know, have kids under the same roof with them. So that's part of the problem, I think. Uh, you know, this you know, tremendous, you know, change in family structure in the United States. Another is the social welfare uh, disincentives in the United States, social welfare state disincentives. Now, our social welfare s- system uh, is not nearly as generous as other uh, rich democracies, uh, welfare states, and you'll hear that all the time if you talk to people from other countries. But that doesn't mean that the disincentives in our particular constructed system might not have some pretty uh, serious effects. And one thing you can see in particular has to do with our patchwork archipelago of disability programs. The last time I looked at those numbers, well over half of the men who were neither working nor looking for work were in homes that were uh, obtaining at least uh, at least one disability program benefit. Now that doesn't mean that disability programs are causing the flight from work. I mean that's not what I'm saying. But what is uh, true and is incontestably true is disability programs and the associated programs that you can uh, obtain benefits from if you're in uh, in uh, you know uh, enrolled in disability uh, programs. Those are financing a lifestyle or a life outside of the workforce. And so you have this terrible waste of human potential where people become long-termers in disability programs in their late 30s and then while away their lives until they're you know, 62 when they get a very modest uh, social security benefit because they haven't been in the workforce. So that's another another point third point which i think has been very largely and unfortunately ignored is that the united states has an extraordinarily large and invisible population of uh ex-felons of ex-cons and that's unlike what you see in any other modern uh western nation Uh, as of about the year 2010 one estimate suggested that almost 20 million adult Americans had uh, a felony conviction in their background. I mean, that's a lot more than the 2 million persons behind bars that we hear about in, you know, mass, in discussions of mass incarceration. If we were to update those figures to today, I think we'd see pretty clearly that for every uh, person who's behind bars, uh, you know, convicted and imprisoned. There are over 10 people who were in society as a whole, in society at large, with a felony conviction in their background. That means that more than one in eight, maybe getting towards one in seven adult men right now, uh, has a felony in their past. And that also is part of the problem, makes it much more difficult to work and to get uh uh, to restore their employment reputation, let's put it that way. And so for all of these reasons, the United States uh, is a outlier and not in a good way. And this, uh, I think, truly troubling trend towards a you know, decline in work uh, in our society. I'm curious, Nick, what you know? What are these people doing with their time? Do you have a sense of that? Is it just uh, video games and smoking marijuana or something, or is it something else? Is it like working on social good causes? What are they doing? Funny you should ask. I mean, the, uh, the probably the most reliable and comprehensive answer to your question comes from official government statistics at the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the BLS. They do this thing called the time use survey every year. And so they get thousands of people to answer your question. They say from the, you know, from the time you wake up in the morning till the time you uh, go to bed, what do you do? What, what do you do with your day? 
uh, and they ask, among other people, uh, guys who are neither working nor looking for work. Now, it turns out that you have to make a distinction in that group between guys who are full-time students and guys who are neither employed nor in education and training, which is what the Brits called N-E-E-T, NEET. Guys who are full-time students pretty much spend their time like employed people. Um, and, and those students are only about 10% of this population, right? Exactly so it's right. not representative, yeah. No, it's a very small fraction. You're exactly right. It's about a tenth. And so the overwhelming majority, um, I mean, way over six million, um, are um, are in this other category. And w- according to their self-reporting, it's a pretty grim picture. Um, this The men in this um, neither employed nor in education and training group basically don't do civil society. They, they don't uh, spend time at worship. You know, they don't spend much time volunteering or doing charity, anything like that. Even though they've got, you'd think, nothing but time on their hands, they do strikingly little uh, housework, helping out around the house, relatively little uh, helping with other persons, you know, care for others in the home. As you were intimating, what they mainly say they are doing is watching. Now, uh, watching screens. Now, the surveys don't tell us what screens they're watching or what uh, programs or things they're watching, uh, but they report about 2,000 hours a year in front of screens. Um, and, um, you know, that 2000 hours a year is like a full-time job. Uh, I mean, that, that's a lot of time, uh, over the course of a year. Others, other work that I did not do, but other research has shown also on the basis of self-reported survey, uh, survey information that about half of these guys say that they're taking, um, pain pills, pain medication every day. Not necessarily narcotics, but some sort of analgesics or pain medication. So you've got this situation where people are not just, you know, watching a screen all day, but they're watching a screen all day stoned. And that's a, you know, that that sounds to me like a kind of a definition of, you know, disconnected misery. And you you call this an invisible crisis. I think one reason it, it's an invisible crisis is exactly what you said. The government doesn't really collect data on this population of people with um, criminal records or, or with felony convictions. But I think another reason it might be an invisible crisis, and, and let me know what you think about this, is that we just don't talk about it. We don't even really seem to have the language to talk about it. Like, could you imagine, just for example, if a CEO of a publicly traded company or a major politician were to say that, you know, my priority this year is to get more men jobs. We really just want to hire more men. You know, like you couldn't even imagine that. <laughs> like it would be it would be seen as absurd. And yet, you know, there another statistic that comes to mind is um, uh, college graduation rates between men and women. Um, it, mm-hmm. men are, uh, a, a small and shrinking percentage. I believe it's something like 41 or 42% of college graduates, uh, whereas obviously women are much more, um, and very few people talk about that as well. Now I'm not insinuating by any means that men are on average or in everything doing worse than women, but they are in some very key metrics, suicide as well. Um, doing quite worse than women. And we don't really seem to be having any sort of serious political debate or cultural debate about why that is and why this has been going on now for, you know, going on, you know, over, uh, over 50 years. I mean, it's a big question and it's a disturbing one. And your thought experiment, uh, you know, could a, could a CEO, uh, Declare that this is going to be the uh, the year of the forgotten men or the invisible men. It's a really interesting one. It kind of uh, kind of 
puts the, what would you call it, the cultural or the normative side of that into perspective. One thing which we, um, one thing which I think we uh, know is that um, working age men are not an officially defined um, victim class, you know, in the United States. They're not a protected group. And maybe that is one of the reasons that they are overlooked more easily. Uh, as I mentioned, I think that the, the happy fact that they, uh, they have not been causing a lot of trouble for other people, uh, they've not been a menace to society in some explicit sort of way, also um, helps explain the genial indifference that uh, we've had in public policy to the um, uh, the difficulties of this of this group, um, but there's something highly unusual and maybe unnatural in having a group which, throughout history, has been the the key category of providers for others in society end up as helpless dependents in, uh, in surprising proportion. And maybe this could only happen in a society as vastly wealthy as our own. I mean, Darwin would have taken care of this problem in his own unforgiving way in a much poorer, uh, much poorer society, perhaps. But this is a new and very unfamiliar problem and as you said earlier, we don't even really have the language for just knowing how to talk about it yet. Nick, I'm curious, what's your sense of how these people are supporting themselves? Uh, you mentioned about, uh, did you say about half of them live in households that are getting some form of uh, uh, social assistance programs? But that leaves, you know, 50% of these people, like, how are they getting by? Well, again, if you, I'm, I'm a kind of a numbers nerd. Uh, you could probably get a much more human and um, knowledgeable assessment if you talk to somebody like a J.D. Vance who wrote that wonderful, poignant book, Hillbilly Elegy, who lived the life and who knew it from the inside. I wish we had a thousand J.D. Vances in different communities in America explaining how people are really living in this country. Maybe not in the Senate, though. I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, that's a different question. <laughs> that's a different question. But, his, but the, the book is the book. Uh, what what whatever happens with Vance's political fortunes, the book is going to be a keeper, and it's going to be a lasting contribution. And um, so, uh, I think we could. I think we could have a, a lot. A lot of uh, if we had a lot of uh, spotlights shining on different places in the United States, we'd understand a lot more about what's going on in our country. Um, so when I, when I just use these kind of like blunt instruments, these statistical numbers that I get my hands on, you know, the, the kind of imperfect flashlights, you know, but part of what they suggest is that unworking men are living in homes where other people help to support them. I mean, the, the relatives that help to support the other people are either you know, family members, girlfriends, the very important uncle, Uncle Sam. Uh, all of those provide a, a financial network which keep most of these men out of destitution. It is by no means a princely life. Um, but it is at the same time, so far as I could tell from my own homework, not something that places these men without work in the bottom fifth of the income spectrum, the consumption spectrum in the United States. That bottom fifth is reserved for overwhelmingly for single mothers with children. They have a really hard life, a really hard life. Um, and um, the men without work seem to be in the not the bottom fifth of the consumption spectrum, but maybe the second fifth, the 20 to 40% group. Ironically, it's that's kind of in the, 
in the area which used to be described as working class. But these, of course, are men who are neither working nor looking for work. I, I, I'm curious. It, it almost sounds like part of this is like a, a, a hollowing out of manufacturing jobs, of um, you know, offshoring, of uh, and the decline of marriage, and of course, uh, criminality as well. I, I have a question around criminality. Uh, are, are these uh, are Americans just like uh, especially prone to criminality, or do we just prosecute more crimes than other countries? What's your sense of that? Well, we've got. We've got much higher homicide rates than other um, other Western democracies. I mean, that's one pretty unmistakable uh, indicator of crime, right? I mean, you know, you can you can say that petty theft is Hard you know, normative. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, that, that yeah, that's a pretty tough one to overlook. So we've got we've got very high rates of uh, violent crime in comparison to other rich countries. Um, we had a um, explosion of crime in the uh, in the USA between the 60s, 70s, going into the 80s, and it was followed a little while later by an explosion of punishment. Uh, you know, convicting people of felonies, sending people off to jail. There's there's no place else in um, the Western world that sends as high a proportion of its population to uh, to prison as we do, as you know. So. So this is something which is, for better or worse, pretty distinctive of the U.S., and it's been it's been new and kind of different since the end of World War II. We didn't have gigantic, you know, gigantic prison networks in the U.S. before World War II. So this is something which is kind of new. Now, with respect to manufacturing, which you mentioned, I was wondering about that also myself because you know. Uh, many heavy um, heavy work that requires physical stamina and upper body strength. Let's say is you know kind of it's kind of like a male description, right? And we have seen a steady decline in manufacturing as a proportion of all jobs in the U.S. from the end of World War II to now. I mean, at this point. It's basically like only one in 12 jobs is a manufacturing job in the United States. Uh, so, so that, you might say, disadvantages guys in a way that, um, you know, it's kind of uh, disproportionate. But if you look at other Western countries, they've had kind of the same decline in share of jobs in manufacturing that we've had. And I'm thinking of places like like Sweden or Australia or France even, and they haven't had the same um, flight from work that we've seen for our prime age men. So uh, same symptom in other places, but with different, you know, with different results. Uh, the, The decline, the decline of manufacturing certainly has got some consequences, uh, but whether it can account for a lot of what we're seeing right now, I have my questions. So, so that, you know, that rise in crime in the 60s and 70s sparked a movement with which I believe you're familiar, you know, the neoconservative movement, mm-hmm, sure. um, you know, Irving Kristol, James Q. Wilson, uh, Daniel Bell, many others. Um, essentially, they were New Deal liberals who they said were mugged by reality. And, and they didn't mean that in the foreign policy sense, which we now associate them mostly with, but really in the in, in the, the violence sense, you know, domestically. Yep. And they they proposed, you know, they so for among other things, they they switched parties generally to the Republican Party, though not always. And they became much more socially conservative and really advocated a tough on crime response, you know, knowing that you come, at least in my opinion, I'm putting words in your mouth from that tradition, you know, I believe Irving Crystal was your mentor. Has has the research in this book caused you to reevaluate at all, you know, America's tough on crime response to what happened in the 60s and 70s? Or, or you know, do you still think that that was the necessary re- way to respond to the wave of violence that you alluded to? 
That's a really interesting question. It's a really, yeah. So I'm a, um, I, I think I could call myself an unreconstructed uh, neoconservative. I was a, uh, like many of the neoconservative tribe, I was very far left when I was in my uh, late teens and early 20s and made a journey uh, to the other side. Um, and I would say that the uh, this is this is a use of the term neoconservatism from before the George W. Bush neocon invasion of Iraq sort of um, hijacking of the term. The, the original idea of neoconservatism was really the insight that any big policy that you undertake is going to have unintended consequences. And unless you take into account the unintended consequences as well as the intended ones, you're not going to know where you end up. So with the unintended consequence of the, the punishment and the punishment in response to the crime wave is the long-term atomization of of ex-felons and the difficulty of reintegrating them into society, economy, and family afterwards. Um, so the question would be if we had a if we had an alternative approach, would we have been able both to reduce crime the way that crime was reduced until a year or so ago, this long-term decline in crime, and also effectively reintegrate and reform, if you will, the um, convicted criminals. And and that's and that's a really that's uh, a really hard question um, because it's. It's not clear that we've devised that we've devised a formula that could do that. I mean, we've got to be constantly looking for that. But one of the things which I find maddening is that the government doesn't even seem to be sufficiently interested in this question to keep data on the circumstances of ex-cons in the United States of people who've had you know you know, felonies in their background. Uh, they don't keep, we don't even have a total headcount for this group. We don't know how they live, what their living arrangements are, what their incomes are, what their health is, uh, you know, what, you know, uh, what their welfare dependence is. Um, and if we don't have any of the, that information or information about their employment status, you know, we can't have evidence-based policies for reintegration into society. So um, it's, it is unfathomable to me that we maintain this um, you know, statistical blindness about a group of people who are almost as large as the adult population of California, about larger than the adult population of Texas. This is almost a thread that we can see throughout your your career. You know, I'm, I think of your early work on on the Soviet Union and the, and the 1981 New York Review of Books article. You know, about how life expectancy was falling in the Soviet Union. And then your work on North Korea, the demographics of North Korea, which is obviously exceptionally difficult to access and potentially life-threatening if you do. And you know what I'm seeing is that you, you have a penchant for um, getting visibility into invisible regimes and problems. And I guess the unfortunate thing is that now the invisible regime you're getting visibility into is the United States. And, you know, it's it's always dangerous to predict the future, but you know, based on your experience looking at decadent and, and corrupt regimes overseas, are you starting to see patterns in the United States that resemble what you've seen overseas? And if so, what are you, what are your thoughts on that? Well, okay. Well, yeah, this is uh, this is your life, Nick Eberstadt, isn't it? Well, so <laughs> I guess uh, I guess some of the things that we're registering in the United States today look to me a little bit too close for comfort to 
warning lights that were going off, for example, in the Soviet Union in late Soviet era. And I'm not saying that we are a dictatorship and I'm not saying that America is uh, heading towards a collapse or anything like that. Um, you know, we, we're, a, we're an open democracy and I think that we're going to come out of our current problems and thrive. Um, what is highly troubling is to see the uh, stagnation in health progress in the United States and the retrogression in health for large numbers of Americans pre-COVID, before the COVID shot, um, with the uh, problem of the deaths of despair and other indications of what I'd called elsewhere a new misery. Um, now, we have a way of correcting these problems that um, that a uh, totalitarian dictatorship like the Soviet Union couldn't because we were an open society and we've got a democratic process, which I think can, uh, can attend to problem solving in a way that autocracies cannot. But the, um, the idea that life expectancy in the USA would be at least temporarily lower than the life expectancy in what the area of Europe, which was once called East Germany, is, uh, is, a, is a circumstance that I never thought I'd live to see. I, I believe that the U.S. life expectancy has fallen for four or five of the past six years. So to your point, it's not, it's not just a COVID thing. And obviously a lot of that has to do with um, uh, the opioid epidemic, which is obviously related to our topic today, but also a lot of it has to do with lifestyle-related chronic diseases, mm -hmm. uh, obesity, heart mm -hmm. disease, type 2 diabetes, Absolutely. Uh, which gets to one of the difficulties here, and this is obviously something I think that neoconservatives are keenly aware of, is that a lot of this has to do with personal choices that are reflective of individual moral character and therefore, there's only so much government can even do to influence them because it's government has a hard time mandating or even encouraging virtue, right? So it, it, based on that, does, is that a reason for us perhaps then to be, even though we are an open and free democracy, perhaps we should also be concerned that there are, there are limits to the policy responses to a lot of these problems? I mean, I think I think you framed the uh, you framed the problem very well. Um, as a flourishing democracy, we have to depend upon a virtuous citizenry. I mean, this goes back to uh, the early you know debates about the, of our founding fathers and um, individual responsibility has to be uh, an important precept for our social and uh, not just our social life, but our personal lives. So there's certainly room for improvement, let us say, in our public health policies and in our um, education as active and healthy citizens. Um, it is strange and troubling that our health and life sciences economy should claim as much of our economic output as it does. Uh, we are all beneficiaries of the extraordinary technological advances that our health economy is capable of. I mean, we are all of us who are vaccinated uh, are the beneficiaries of the extraordinary uh, capabilities for really rapid innovation in the, in the face of emergency that our health economy is and our pharmaceutical uh, economy is capable of. But I don't think that it's I don't think that we can make the argument anymore that uh, the quality and uh, the, the, the quality of the services in the United States are 
so much better than in other parts of the world that this can explain the difference in six or seven or eight uh, percentage points of GDP for our healthcare economy. Well, it, it does seem like, uh, you know, if, if the U.S. is spending like a fifth or a sixth of our GDP on, on health care and yet our life expectancy is going down, uh, something seems to be very wrong there. Like, it, it's just not it's just not yeah. working. There was a time uh, a generation ago when I could show that American babies uh, of any ethnicity uh, were more likely to survive their first year of life uh, at any birth weight, you know, at at extremely low high-risk birth weight than in places like Sweden or Scandinavia. Um, And from from those differences back then, I could make the argument, or at least I inferred, that uh, our healthcare interventions were so much, you know, more dramatic and so much better that they accounted for the uh, much better survival chances at any high-risk birth weight in the U.S. as opposed to Scandinavia. But that difference is no longer there. Uh, you, you don't see that anymore. So there, there are other questions that have to be answered about uh, about what's ailing the United States and what's ailing our uh, still very dynamic and still very innovative uh, healthcare economy sector. I do wonder, is, is a lot of what's going on some kind of uh, crisis of meaning in some sense? So, you know, it, 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 perhaps I have the sense, and this just could be completely off base, but that it used to be, you know, if you were uh, one of these men, uh, you could have a very meaningful life going to work uh, at one company for your entire life. And providing for a family, like that was a very uh, meaningful thing. You know, meaning in in my mind comes from doing something where if you don't do it, it's not going to happen. So maybe it's providing for a family. But then suddenly, you know, perhaps it's hard to get those jobs. Those jobs go away. And then these we we see it reflected in these deaths of despair. Is that, you know, could that be some plausible story of kind of what's going on in, in some of these cases? If you look at the employment numbers over time. I'm sure you guys have. He's very well informed. Um, you'll see that the that the overall work rate in America went up from about 48 until about 2000. Now, if, if women were just replacing men, you know, in the workforce, it would just be flat. So there was a period when work rates were going up for women and also for the nation as a whole. Uh, it was a an addition, uh, you know, supplement. But since the year 2000, the work rates have been going down for both men and for women. So whatever has been going wrong for guys has also in some measure been going wrong for girls. We do think we have something that we can't define statistically because it is more like a crisis of meaning. It is more metaphysical. Um, and it, it relates to the misery that we've been discussing. Um, you know, we moderns have um, lost the distinction between poverty and misery, which is a distinction that you know generations before us kind of knew in their bones and could you know could understand intuitively. But with the decline of the family and the decline of work and the decline of uh, religion, uh, and the decline of attachment to community. You know, you've got a whole, um, you know, a whole set of car crashes occurring at once with regard to things that bring answers about the question of who am I and what do I do and what am I for uh, in a society. And for now, since I'm you know, at this point, I'm kind of like uh, you know Grandpa telling his war stories to you. Uh, it when I was growing up, it wasn't as acute as it is now. It was it was a different time with uh, with more confidence in institutions, and I'd say probably generally speaking, more confidence in the future and things that were more likely to be taken for granted without question than 
than today. And it doesn't mean that history is going to be linear and things are going to continue to go in the direction they have been going. Um, but so, something is going to uh, something is going to have to turn around to uh, to change that uh, that focus. Nick, I, I I'm curious. Um, you know, do you see this trend continuing? Do you see any signs that this might abate? Um, and, and also, I, I want to highlight how weird it is to think about this. I, I don't know any people that that uh, you know are, are neats like this, um, and, and I don't. Um, you know, Russ and I, and Nick, you as well. You know, we're all uh, I assume pretty you know pretty well. Uh, we're remunerated better than you know our parents were. Like we're doing well. We live in big cities. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things are pretty nice around here. But when you go out to you know out into the uh, kind of hinterlands, things don't seem to to work as well. But but do you see this trend continuing or reversing? Or if you were a betting man, uh, where do you think this goes? It's hard. To t- it's hard for me to tell exactly when it will reverse. I, I do expect it will reverse. I do expect that things will um, uh, will adjust and get what I would call, let's say, back on track. Because the long term trends, I think, for not just the U.S. but for the world. I think are very clear in this regard. I mean, you take a you take a two hundred year perspective, and it's extraordinary. <laughs> I don't think any of us are going to be living two hundred years, though. So it's a little bit harder to uh, be, you know, have kind of equanimity about that. Um, another thing about social prognostication is that we're always looking in the rearview mirror. We're always looking at things that have already happened and have taken place, and our expectations about the future are that they're going to be like you know today plus two percent. Uh, sometimes things change in a big way, and sometimes they change in a big way in a positive manner as well. It's possible that the that positive trends have already begun that we're not registering yet because you know it, it takes a little while for for people to kind of twink onto that. Um, it's also there are things that happen that are kind of like beyond our imaginations. Uh, you look, you look at the at the um, uh, the history of the United States. And you've had these great uh, awakenings in the past. Nobody ever predicted them. They changed the way that people thought and lived, and for the most part, in a pretty positive way. Um, I don't think we should discount the possibility that that's going to happen again. And do you see, uh, you know, we talked about, you know, the problems with, with government interventions. Are, are there anything governments can do, though, that, that you've seen that, that might help or anything, uh, you know, private enterprise could do as well? Well, of course, government, uh, I mean, of course, government can help. And it, it helps in a, a whole lot of uh, indispensable ways. Uh, I mean, public uh, public order, rule, maintaining rule of law. Rule of law is the most pro-poor, pro-egalitarian institution that one can imagine, because it means that uh, that the little people don't need to have their private militias or their you know army of lawyers to protect their rights. Um, it's it's very pro-poor. Um, we could do we could do a lot better with providing useful, timely information to our public. Uh, unfortunately, that's a pretty, um, that's a pretty inexpensive public function. And so maybe that's why the government hasn't bothered to do it because there are a lot more big ticket items may have more constituencies. Uh, but, an awful lot of what we're going to uh, going to need is going to have to come not from government. It's going to have to come from a renewal and from a healing of uh, civil society, and that's going to be a task for it's going to be a task for every person. It's going to be you know part of their communities, part of their families, part of their faith communities, whatever the different attachments are, uh, and that's where um, I, I think. That's where the really deep promise is. If we can keep government from inadvertently causing too many problems while civil society is healing, I think we'll be on a pretty good path. On that last point, too, um, you know, I'm I'm thinking specifically about the role of business. You know, I've noticed, you know, through my work, and you know, I've seen other businesses too. 
um, there's this new push for second chance hiring, you know, so for mm-hmm. businesses being willing to hire people, uh, despite having criminal records, um, you know, I, mm-hmm. I wonder to, to what extent that that could help reverse this trend. Although something I, I will note, something important you, you uh, say in the book is that a lot of this is due to the fact that you know, a lot of the people who are out of the workforce don't want to return to work. So it's possibly not something that businesses could meaningfully address. So, so, so what do you think about the possibility then, you know, of, of business doing something meaningful to, to address this problem? Oh, I, I think, I think, I think business is a wonderful engine of hope here. And that, I mean, like we were talking about reputational employment, reputation repair, and it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful scope there. And the current job market, I think, makes this more possible than at any time in the in my memory, in my historical memory. I mean, just look at the number of unfilled jobs in the United States today. There are over 11 million unfilled jobs. Uh, employers are screaming for workers, and that gives all workers in the United States a lot more bargaining power, at least for now. And it also means that employers are going to have to become a little bit more flexible about trying to figure out what the qualifications are that are really necessary for their jobs. And I think that that also makes it a lot more likely, at least for now, at least in this moment, that we can have more second chance hiring in the United States. I I wish we had some, we had encouraged this in a more fulsome national way than we do, but I think it's going to be happening for a while now. Anyhow, if we were to, if we were to have a serious reform of our disability archipelago of programs that, and move towards at least a consensus that we wanted to work first principle, you know, in our social support, in our safety net, um, that might be a help too. But getting a consensus for reform in uh, the disability programs isn't something that I see at the moment happening, you know, like right this year. It may happen in the future. I think it will, it will be more likely to happen if we think not about the expense of to taxpayers of these programs, but rather the expense to the so-called beneficiaries of the program. I think if we have a more humane view of this, it'll be a little bit more easy to, uh, uh, to reform them. I hope. I really like that. Well, Nick, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, where can we send people? Where should people find your work? Uh, if you, if you take a look at the American enterprise Institute's website, which is a E I the first three vowels in the alphabet, AEI.org. They have a section about scholars and the researchers there. You can find uh, my uh, research page and a lot of other um, a lot of other researchers' uh, research pages there as well. Um, it's a wonderful place to work, and part of what makes it a wonderful place to work is I've got wonderful colleagues who I think are doing important and really interesting stuff, uh, stuff that I think is good for our country will help our country. I love that. Well, Nick, thanks again for coming on. Um, uh, we really appreciate it. Likewise. And thank you for inviting me. It was a lot of fun to talk with you. Thanks. All the best. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. 